Welcome to Campfire Chronicles. My name is Kelsey Garmandia. I'm your host. It's Tale Thursday, so you know what that means. A great fiction piece to get your weekend started. Being that it's Black History Month, I do want to talk a little bit about identity and about my own personal experience with racial tensions and racial bias. When I was growing up, I was raised by my maternal grandmother. She never mentioned race. She never mentioned her own race, come to think of it. And I never really had conversations revolving around that, which kind of led me to believing the whole I don't see color um, motif and all lives mattering until I graduated college. I had never experienced any type of uh, discrimination or racism until I moved to Southern Illinois. And there was a time that I worked at a bingo hall and my job was to hand out these electronic bingo computers. And at the end of the night, I tallied up how many computers we sold, did paperwork for the company, and sent um, an invoice to the bingo hall so that this way they could pay us. Now, when I was sitting at the table doing the uh, initial counting of the machines, the guy at the end of the table said, So, Kelsey, um, where's your family from? I said, my family's from New York. I'm from New York. And they're like, no, like, where you're, where are they from? Like, where did they come from? So I said, oh, um, I'm Spanish. And they're like, really? I would have assumed Italian. And I do get that a lot. So I didn't think anything of it. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, no, my family is Spanish. So the, the guy goes, oh, Mexican? And he's like, so like what part of Mexico are they from? (laughs) And I looked at him and I said, no, not Mexico. And he's like, so where are you from then? Like what other country could you be from? So I told them that, you know, my grandmother was from Puerto Rico and my great grandfather came from Cuba. To which this person said, oh, well, all you Spicks are exactly the same. I don't even know what my face looked like because I did not have a mirror. But the guy walked off like he had just commented on the weather, just walked off and went to his table. Now, that's not even scratching the surface, I'm sure, of what my fellow people of color and indigenous people go through each day. But I got a taste and I didn't like it. When the Black Lives Matter movement started, I didn't understand it because of how I was raised. I was raised not to acknowledge my own race and to blend in. That was 
what I was raised to do. So I did get into some arguments with friends about the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, I wasn't opposed to, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement at that time. I just thought saying all lives matter would be more inclusive. But I, by any means, like, I thought that I was saying something that was highlighting togetherness, unity. Well, we all learn at different paces. And when I realized at that bingo table that no matter what I did, people would always judge me based on the color of my skin, based on my last name, they would always judge me. And I did come across a few racists in my time and sexists and people who were bigoted. And I think it's just so important to to take a moment and realize that if you truly think that the Black Lives Matter uh, movement is a terrorist organization for wanting people of color to be equal and to be treated equally. If you truly think that that's discriminatory, that that's dividing the country, it's not. If you truly are for all lives mattering, then you would be for Black Lives Mattering. And I can finally say, after years of not understanding the movement, and after experiencing small moments of racism and and discrimination, I get it. I get why it's important. And when Kamala Harris was sworn in as vice president, I felt so much relief that somebody who truly represented what America is and how America came to be is now in office. And she has flaws, but so does everybody in the United States, everybody in the world. But it's important to honor those during Black History Month who deserve it, who 100% deserve it. Now, I'm not one for this promotional activism. I hate those videos that white actors and white actresses get on and start saying, I take responsibility. That's not where it starts. Where it starts is the Black Lives Matter movement. You don't have to go onto a camera to get your makeup done to say that I take responsibility. That's not inciting change. That's not honoring our people of color and indigenous people, it's not honoring their past. Our country was built off of the backs of Native Americans dying and people of color and slaves building our infrastructure. I know that might burn a little bit in your mouth saying that, but that is the only reason why our country has gotten to where it has today. For people now to say that the Black Lives Matter movement 
is a terrorist organization is simply just not true. It is just pointing out that we need to make sure that our black brothers and sisters are treated fairly, are treated equally, and the way to do that is by seeing each other for who we really are. All right, I'll get off my soapbox. But one last thing, for anybody in the past um, that I have spoken to, and I don't know if you're listening to this, you may be, but I learned and I'm growing and I'm always learning. And while I may not understand things at first and I may say dumb things because I don't get it, we all learn at different speeds. So if there's somebody listening to this who still doesn't understand why Black History Month is so important and is so fundamentally American, just give them time. So tonight I'm going to read you a little snippet from my novella called Positive. Positive is the first book in a two-book miniseries that revolves around the life of Salvatore Cuevas. So the story itself, I actually wrote right around the time that the Ferguson riots were going on. And ironically enough, I wrote the story around a pandemic. So the story revolves around Salvatore's life after she finds out that she's a positive, which you'll get in the first little taste of this novella. And it really was supposed to be a metaphor about systemic racism and not being able to change who you are. So without further ado, I give you positive. The sun shines onto the metal roof of the Washington Positive Treatment Facility. I stand with my father and mother on either side of me in a line outside of the building. Most of the people here patiently wait outside with their IDs in hand. Most people came here by choice. My family is different. Two armed drug policing agents stand on either side of us. We tried to run with what little family we had left. But they said it was treason and brought us here after the hospital. One of them nudges my father forward with the butt of his shotgun. His grip on my hand tightens. As we step forward into the waiting area of the diagnostic office, I hear my mother whisper, Are we at risk for exposure? (laughs) That's ridiculous, my father says. But something in his voice tells me he doesn't believe that. We're escorted to a room with a single table and four metal chairs. One man in a hazmat suit sits across from us. Name. Salvatore Cuevas, one of the agents escorting us, says. The man at the table flips through a binder until they find my name. Have a seat. My father walks me to the chair and has me sit next to him. The man grabs my arm and ties a tourniquet around my bicep. Four empty vials lay on the table with my name written in thick black letters on them. I look up and feel my heart drop. A red door is guarded by two more people in hazmat suits. It's the door that everyone spoke about before they disappeared. Like a high school rumor, but much bigger. 
My heart pings at the back of my ribcage. Beyond that door was where my nightmares always led me. I was informed by my colleagues that your surgery didn't go quite so well, the man says, making me jump. No, my father responds. It didn't. He nods and flips through a thin folder, my name also branding the tab attached to it. We're running the general health spectrum test today. If one does indeed come back positive, you will be admitted to the Washington Positive Treatment Facility immediately. He closes the folder and looks up through his mask's goggles. Any questions? My voice gets caught in my throat. I manage to shake my head. The red paint on the door seems to get brighter as he prepares my skin for the needle. I feel nauseous. My father turns my head into his chest as the needle goes in. You're not going through that door, sweetheart, he whispers. I squeeze my eyes shut. If I do go through there, I'll be another number, another statistic, another person taken by the chip's malfunction. A plus B equals C and all that garbage. They call this place a treatment facility, but if you're admitted, you never come back. No one comes back from going through the red door. Going through it means you're a positive, and being a positive means there's no hope for you. Day one, positive. The doctor pulls the needle from my arm. The blood is a combination of deep red and dark purple. Does that mean I'm a positive? I don't know the symptoms of being one. All I know is that you get tested, and if that green plus sign is on your results, you go through the red door. My heart wraps against the back of my ribcage as the doctor takes the vials of blood away. Blood tests never used to mean so much. After the drug policing agency declared that a simple microchip could cure any disease known to man, millions flocked to medical treatment centers worldwide. My parents, my sister, and I were the first in line at ours, although it wasn't really a choice, not the kind of choice we thought it was. After my sister died in our living room following the chip malfunction, we tried to leave. A lot of people from my hometown did the same. They were going to take their chances hiding in the forest or getting past border patrol. It didn't matter to them anymore. Anywhere was better than here once the chip started to malfunction. The cure chip was a one-inch square that was inserted into your lymph nodes. At first, the itching was unbearable. But then, the fear of becoming ill faded. With each month, the chip worked its magic. Flu season didn't exist. Cancer was a thing of the past, and everyone lived in wonderful health. That's when everything took a turn for the worse. A firm grip tightens on my shoulder. I almost forgot my father was here. I can't mistake his oversized hands with anyone else's, though. My mother paces back and forth behind me. The test taking longer than normal? My eyes fail to make contact with her from across the room. Is everything okay, Dad? He looks down at me with wrinkles around the corners of his eyes and smiles. I'm sure it is, sweetheart, he says, squeezing my shoulder again. There's no need to worry. That's where my father is wrong. If I'm a positive, my life is over. Worrying is an understatement. A few years after the chips were inserted into about 90% of the world's population, symptoms of a new disease popped up in several thousand people. Those symptoms varied among the sick, but one thing was certain. 
they would die from whatever it was. Doctors and scientists tried to remove the chips before the virus killed them. Those who didn't those who did survive the procedure were the negatives, mankind's only hope for survival. More than half of the chipped population died either during the operation or from a virus. My parents rushed me to the hospital to get mine removed, but they were too late. My chip had embedded itself into my lymph nodes. I remember my mother screaming when I woke up from the anesthesia, demanding him to put me back under and continue the procedure. The drugs made it hard to understand a lot of the doctor's explanation. He said it was like my body refused to give up the man-made cure-all, that I was lucky enough to survive an attempted removal. I think that's when they decided to run. The scar from the surgery is still raw. The stitches pull at my skin when I move my head. I run my finger over the puffy incision and wince at the dried blood around the threads. Footsteps echo from beyond the red door, drawing my attention away from my incision. As it swings open, my heart drops. The look in the doctor's eyes confirm my worst fears. Hands protected by thick rubber gloves squeeze my upper arms and drag me toward the bright red door. My father's hand slips from my shoulder as they pull me away. I'm a positive. I'm death in a 16-year-old girl's body. Mom! Dad! I wrench my neck, several of my stitches tearing in the process, to catch one last glimpse of them before I'm dragged through the door. My mother and father stand looking at me with vacant stares. They don't reach out to me. They don't call my name. They don't do those things because of what I am, and because they are safe from wherever I'm going. Cell. The hallways have no noise. Rows of plexiglass cells pass by like a slideshow reel. Tears stream down from the corners of my eyes, mixing with the blood dripping from my torn stitches. The two people in hazmat suits exchange very few words. I can tell that at least one of them is a female. Name, Salvatore Cuevas. Age, 16. The one on my right grunts in response. Where are you taking me? I know they won't answer, but when the silence returns, Panic courses through my veins. This is real. All my, nightmare, all my nightmares have finally come true with one test. One test and now it's me versus them. Several cells contain positives that glare through the plexiglass at me. Their eyes peer from sunken sockets. I don't see any life in them whatsoever. As we get further down the hallway, the pleas for help finally reach us. The taller guard shakes his head. Nothing would make me happier than to silence these things already. The female laughs. Sure hope this new lead ND knows what he's doing. We reach a second door at the end of the hallway. The person on my left punches in a key code and pushes through it. Two cells are occupied while the third remains open. They toss me into the open doorway and I stumble, my knees colliding with the concrete. The door to the cell slams shut behind me followed by a vacuum sound. Without another word, the people in hazmat suits march back through the door in a muffled hurry. Hey! My voice bounces off the walls of my cell. I slam my fists into the plexiglass until my hands throb. Let me go! You can't do this to me! You can't! It's no use trying. I turn to my right and see a lanky young man in white scrubs on the other side of the glass. They'll just ignore you. Tears blur my vision again. I know he's right. 
My parents didn't even try to stop them from taking me. Why would they care about a positive? People like me were the reason that humanity was in danger of extinction. I was a flaw in the system, a glitch with deadly consequences. I slam my fist harder against the glass and scream after them. My breathing comes in gasps as panic takes hold of my body. I thought the red door was the worst I would face, but now I know that what happens behind the door is much, much worse. I slide down the glass until I'm on my knees with my fist pressed against the clear barrier. My sobbing deafens me. A pulse vibrates through the cell and shocks my hands where my skin meets the wall. I scurry backward and rub my tingling skin. They're electrified. The boy comes within an inch from the conjoining wall between our two cells. It's to keep us contained. Has anyone gotten out of here? Sure. He dips his head and pulls at the hem of his shirt. But they're usually dead. Their room gets cleaned and then another person takes their place. How long have you been here? I pull my knees into my chest and hug them. One month, seven days, and 16 hours, he responds, mimicking my position. Not that I'm counting or anything. I look past him to his neighbor's cell and see a trail of blood drip from the positive's bed to the drain in the middle of the floor. The panic takes hold again. It feels like the walls are closing in on me. I found it's easier to survive here by focusing on your breathing, he responds. It takes away the stress of being here. Is it because of the chip? Is this why he's sick? The boy shakes his head. I don't know. I was studying English in college before all this happened. Science isn't my forte. A wishing noise fills the room. I look up and watch a white mist fall from the ceiling like snow. My neighbor stands up and heads to his bed. Before laying down, he turns towards me. You might want to get in bed too. Once you inhale this a couple times, you'll be knocked on your ass faster than a rodeo clown. I copy him and climb onto the stiff white mattress and curl into a ball. The mist calms my nerves, but not the emotions attached to them. There's not one bone in me that wants to sleep. I sob in between hyperventilated breaths into my palms. What are they going to do to me? Even with the soothing feeling from the mist that falls, I can't sleep. My body shakes with fear. I'm surprised I haven't thrown up from the amount of stress in my veins. My neighbor sleeps with his back turned towards me. Even though he's like me, I'm afraid of him. That's what the media does to people like me. They make us the bad guys. They make us evil. And then, no one comes for you. No one defends you because of what you are. I've never been sick a day in my life, and seeing all those positives glare through their cell walls makes me sob harder into my palms. I can't help but wonder if the person that occupied this cell before me was doing the same thing I am right now when they found out they were a positive. I wonder when they died if they even put a new mattress down. My skin crawls at the thought. The mist falls in thicker layers now. I look up at the ceiling and think of home. The mist reminds me of the rainy days in Spokane. I'd give anything to be curled up in my bed at home with a picture of my sister and I on my nightstand staring at me. Please, don't let me die here. I whisper into my pillow before the mist lulls me to sleep. Alone. What's going on? Why won't you let me out? 
I scan my bedroom for something to pry open my door with. Even with my panicked heartbeat banging against the back of my ribcage, being in my own bedroom sends a wave of relief over me. Even if it's only for a moment. What's wrong with Elaine? Reliving the day my sister died has been something I've dealt with for the past several weeks. I think of it as my punishment for everything. My punishment for not going to her. My punishment for being afraid. My punishment for watching her suffocate to death. The dream hasn't changed very much, to be honest. Little details have faded since that day, but the same vacant glare from her purpled face never changes. It always haunts me, sending me into a panic when it appears again. A scream rips through my throat and everything fades to black. A muffled banging reaches my ears. My eyes are frozen shut. My sister's stare still pleading for me to help her even after her death. A thin layer of sweat clings my clothes to my skin. The sheets twist in my fists as the night terror forces me to stay in my memory. My throat burns with each yell until I choke on my own voice. Miss Quavos! A swoosh followed by heavy footsteps brings the voice closer to me. Miss Quavos, wake up! My eyes shoot open. A man with green eyes leans over me. A hazmat suit is the wall between him and I. I push myself from him and scurry to the far corner of the room. My knees slam into my chest and I rock there, wishing the image of my sister from my head. The footsteps come once again, but I don't open my eyes. Are you all right, miss? The man's hand grazes my arm but never fully grabs it. I want it to be my father's hand squeezing my shoulder. I want it to be him reassuring me that everything is going to be all right. I only want his comfort. That was a little snippet of positive. What'd you guys think? Let me know. We've got the Twitch stream going. Always hit me up on Facebook at Campfire Chronicles Stories After Dark. And if you have something that you want to hear or you have commentary that you want to throw on the show, email us at campfirechronicles at iCloud.com. On behalf of Cure Habitat, My name is Kelsey Garmandia. Thanks for stopping by the campfire. See you next time.